Imagine how much better the world would be if everyone woke up well-rested every day. That's why I and the team make The Sleepy Bookshelf. Join us in this mission. You can help by supporting the show via our premium feed, which will get you ad-free access to the entire bookshelf and exclusive bonus episodes. If premium isn't for you, that's okay. Recommending your favorite episode to a friend or family member is just as meaningful. Thank you for your support, and I hope you sleep well tonight. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's so lovely to have you here with me. This evening, we'll continue with Jane Eyre. But before we do that, just take a moment here to breathe and relax. Notice how your body feels and focus on any area that seems to be holding any tension. Consciously give it permission to relax. Let your head fall heavy into your pillow. Take the deepest breath you have taken all day and audibly sigh out your exhale, breathing away all your negative thoughts. Last time, Jane approached the old lady fortune teller who had come to Thornfield Hall and was in the adjoining room to the parlour. Jane was sceptical, and it seemed that the old lady wanted to talk much of Mr. Rochester, almost as though she was trying to ascertain Jane's feelings towards him. Jane remained reserved, and was surprised after a time to see the old woman shed her disguise. It had been Mr. Rochester, after all, playing a prank on the party. She scolded him for his deceit, and then told him of the stranger, Mr. Mason, who had arrived. He looked pale, and asked Jane to bring the man to him, without letting the others know he had returned. That night, after Jane had gone to bed, the house was awoken by a loud scuffle in the upper rooms. She heard someone call for help, and immediately dressed and went out into the hall. The guests were already there, and soon Mr. Rochester arrived from the back stairs insisting all go back to bed, that a servant had simply had a nightmare and was prone to attacks such as these. Jane did not believe this and remained dressed, waiting to be called upon in her chamber. When Mr. Rochester knocked, she followed him up the stairs to find Mr. Mason in a terrible state covered in blood, and Grace Poole locked in the next room, 
Mr. Rochester asked her to tend to Mason in silence while he fetched the surgeon, and he left. And so we pick back up tonight. Jane alone in the dark with Mr. Mason and Grace Poole just next door. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 20 continued. Here then I was in the third story, fastened into one of his mystic cells, night around me, a pale and bloody spectacle under my eyes and hands, a murderess hardly separated from me by a single door. Yes, that was appalling. The rest I could bear, but I shuddered at the thought of Grace Pool bursting out upon me. I must keep to my post, however. I must watch this ghastly countenance, these blue, still lips, forbidden to unclose, these eyes now shut, now opening, now wandering through the room, now fixing on me and ever glazed with the dullness of horror. I must dip my hand again and again in the basin of water and wipe away the trickling blood. I must see the light of the unsnuffed candle wane on my employment the shadows darken on the raw, antique tapestry round me and grow black under the hangings of the vast, old bed and quiver strangely over the doors of a great cabinet opposite whose front, divided into twelve panels, bore in grim design the heads of the twelve apostles, each enclosed in its separate panel as in a frame, while above them at the top rose an ebony crucifix and a dying Christ. According as the shifting obscurity and flickering gleam hovered here or glanced there, was now the bearded physician, Luke, that bent his brow. Now St. John's long hair that waved, and anon the devilish face of Judas that grew out of the panel, and seeming gathering life and threatening a revelation of the arch-traitor of Satan himself in his subordinate's form. Amidst all this, I had to listen as well as watch, to listen for the movements of the wild beast or the fiend in yonder side den. 
but since Mr. Rochester's visit, it seemed spellbound. All the night, I heard but three sounds at three long intervals. A step creak, a momentary renewal of the snarling, canine noise, and a deep human groan. Then, my own thoughts worried me. What crime was this that lived incarnate in this sequestered mansion and could neither be expelled nor subdued by the owner? What mystery that broke out now in fire and now in blood at the deadest hours of night? What creature was it that masked in an ordinary woman's face and shape uttered the voice now of a mocking demon and anon of a carrion-seeking bird of prey? And this man I bent over, this commonplace, quiet stranger, How had he become involved in this web of horror, and why had the fury flown at him? What made him seek this quarter of the house at an untimely season when he should have been asleep in bed? I had heard Mr. Rochester assign him an apartment below. What brought him here, and why, now, Was he so tame under the violence or treachery done him? Why did he so quietly submit to the concealment Mr. Rochester enforced? Why did Mr. Rochester enforce this concealment? His guest had been outraged, his own life on a former occasion had been hideously plotted against, and both attempts he smothered in secrecy and sank in oblivion. Lastly, I saw Mr. Mason was submissive to Mr. Rochester, that the impetuous will of the latter had complete sway over the inertness of the former, The few words which had passed between them assured me of this. It was evident that in their former discussion, the passive disposition of the one had been habitually influenced by the active energy of the other. Whence then had arisen Mr. Rochester's dismay when he heard of Mr. Mason's arrival? Why had the mere name of this unresisting individual, whom his word now sufficed to control like a child, fallen on him a few hours since, as a thunderbolt might fall on an oak? Oh, I could not forget his look and his paleness when he whispered, Jane, I have got a blow. I have got a blow, Jane. I could not forget how the arm had trembled which he had rested on my shoulder, 
and it was no light matter which could thus bow me the resolute spirit and thrill the vigorous frame of Fairfax Rochester. When will he come? When will he come? I cried inwardly as night lingered and lingered, as my bleeding patient drooped, moaned, sickened. And neither day nor aid arrived. I had again and again held the water to Mr. Mason's white lips, and again and again offered him the stimulating salts. My efforts seemed ineffectual. Either bodily or mental suffering, or loss of blood, or all three combined were fast prostrating his strength. He moaned so, and looked so weak, wild and lost, I feared he was dying, and I might not even speak to him. The candle, wasted at last, went out. As it expired, I perceived streaks of grey light edging the window curtains. Dawn was then approaching. Presently, I heard Pilot bark far below, out of his distant kennel in the courtyard. Hope revived, nor was it unwarranted. In five minutes more, the grating key, the yielding lock, warned me my watch was relieved. It could not have lasted more than two hours. Many a week has seemed shorter. Mr. Rochester entered, and with him the surgeon he had been to fetch. Now, Carter, be on the alert, he said to this last. I give you but half an hour for dressing the wound, fastening the bandages, getting the patient downstairs and all. But is he fit to move, sir? Carter asked. No doubt of it. It is nothing serious. He is nervous. His spirits must be kept up. Come, set to work. Mr. Rochester drew back the thick curtain, drew up the Holland blind, let in all the daylight he could, and I was surprised and cheered to see how far dawn was advanced. What rosy streaks were beginning to brighten the east. Then he approached Mason, whom the surgeon was already handling. Now, my good fellow, how are you? He asked. She's done for me, I fear, was the faint reply. Not a whit. Courage. This day fortnight... You'll hardly be a pin the worse of it. You've lost a little blood, that's all. Carter, assure him there's no danger. Can do that conscientiously, said Carter, who had now undone the bandages. Only I wish I could have got here sooner. 
you would not have bled so much. But how is this? The flesh on the shoulder is torn as well as cut. This wound was not done with a knife. There have been teeth here. She bit me, he murmured. She worried me like a tigress when Rochester got the knife from her. You should not have yielded. You should have grappled with her at once, said Mr. Rochester. But under such circumstances, what could one do? Returned Mason. It was frightful, he added, shuddering. I did not expect it. She looked so quiet at first. I warned you, was his friend's answer. I said, be on your guard when you go near her. Besides, you might have waited till tomorrow and had been with you. It was mere folly to attempt the interview tonight and alone. I thought I could have done some good. You thought? Yes, makes me impatient to hear you. But, however, you have suffered, and are likely to suffer enough for not taking my advice, so I'll say no more. Carter, hurry. The sun will soon rise, and I must have him off. Directly, sir. The shoulder is just bandaged. I must look to this other wound in the arm. She's had her teeth here, too, I think. She sucked the blood. She said she'd drain my heart, said Mason. I saw Mr. Rochester shudder, a singularly marked expression of disgust, horror, hatred, warped his countenance almost to distortion. But he only said, Come, be silent, Richard, and never mind her gibberish. Don't repeat it. I wish I could forget it, was the answer. You will when you are out of the country, when you get back to Spanish town. You may think of her as dead and buried, or rather you need not think of her at all. Impossible to forget this night, Mason replied. Tis not impossible. Have some energy, man. You thought you were as dead as a herring two hours since, and you were all alive and talking now. There, Carter has done with you all, nearly so. I'll make you decent in a trice. Jane, he turned to me for the first time since his re-entrance. Take this key, go down to my bedroom, and walk straight forward into my dressing room. Open the top drawer of the wardrobe and take out a clean shirt and neck handkerchief. Bring them here and be nimble. I went, sought the repository he had mentioned, found the articles named, and returned with them. Now, he said, go to the other side of the bed while I order his clothes, but don't leave the room. You may be wanted again. I retired as directed. Was anybody stirring below when you went down, Jane? Inquired Mr. Rochester presently. No, sir. All was very still. 
I replied. We shall get you off cannily, Dick, and it will be better, both for your sake and for that of the poor creature in yonder. I have striven long to avoid exposure. I should not like it to come at last. Here, Carter, help him on with his whiskers. Where did you leave your furred cloak? Can't travel a mile without that, I know, in this cold climate. In your room? Jane, run down to Mr. Mason's room, the one next to mine, and fetch a cloak you will see there. Again, I ran, and again returned, bearing an immense mantle, lined and edged with fur. Now I've another errand for you, said my untiring master. You must away to my room again. What a mercy you were shod with velvet, Jane. A clod-hopping messenger would never do at this juncture. You must open the middle drawer of my dressing table and take out a little phial and a little glass you will find there. Quick. I flew thither and back, bringing the desired vessels. That's well. Now, doctor, I shall take the liberty of administering a dose myself on my own responsibility. I got this cordial at Rome of a charlatan, a fellow you would have kicked, Carter. It is not a thing to be used indiscriminately, but it is good upon occasion, as now, for instance. Jane, a little water. He held out the tiny glass, and I half filled it from the water bottle on the washstand. That will do. Now wet the lip of the phial. I did so. He measured twelve drops of a crimson liquid and presented it to Mason. Drink, Richard. It will give you the heart you lack for an hour or so. But will it hurt me? Is it inflammatory? Mason asked. Drink, Mr. Rochester urged. Mr. Mason obeyed because it was evidently useless to resist. He was dressed now. He still looked pale, but he was no longer gory and sullied. Mr. Rochester let him sit three minutes after he had swallowed the liquid. He then took his arm. Now I am sure you can get on your feet, he said. Try. The patient rose. Carter, take him under the other shoulder. Be of good cheer, Richard. Step out. That's it. I do feel better, remarked Mr. Mason. I'm sure you do. Now, Jane, trip on before us away to the back stairs. Unbolt the side passage door and tell the driver of the post chaise she will see in the yard or just outside, for I told him not to drive his rattling wheels over the pavement to be ready. We are coming. And Jane, if anyone is about, come to the foot of the stairs and hem. It was by this time, half past five, and the sun was on the point of rising, but I found the kitchen still dark and silent. The side passage door was fastened, 
I opened it with as little noise as possible. All the yard was quiet, but the gates stood wide open, and there was a post-chaise with horses ready harnessed and driver seated on the box stationed outside. I approached him and said the gentlemen were coming. He nodded. Then I looked carefully round and listened. The stillness of early morning slumbered everywhere. The curtains were yet drawn over the servants' chamber windows. Little birds were just twittering in the blossom-blanched orchard trees, whose boughs drooped like white garlands over the wall enclosing one side of the yard. The carriage horses stamped from time to time in their closed stables. All else was still. The gentlemen now appeared, Mason, supported by Mr. Rochester and the surgeon, seemed to walk with tolerable ease. They assisted him into the chaise. Carter followed. Take care of him, said Mr. Rochester to the latter, and keep him at your house till he is quite well. I shall ride over in a day or two to see how he gets on. Richard, how is it with you? The fresh air revives me, Fairfax. Leave the window open on his side, Carter. There is no wind. Goodbye, Dick. Fairfax. Mr. Mason hesitated. Well, what is it? Mr. Rochester returned. Let her be taken care of. Let her be treated as tenderly as may be. Let her... He stopped and burst into tears. I do my best and have done it and will do it, was the answer. He shut up the chaise door and the vehicle drove away. Yet would to God there was an end of all of this, added Mr. Rochester as he closed and barred the heavy yard gates. This done, He moved with slow step and abstracted air towards a door in the wall bordering the orchard. I, supposing he had done with me, prepared to return to the house. Again, however, I heard him call, Jane. He had opened the portal and stood at it, waiting for me. Come where there is some freshness for a few minutes, he said. That house is a mere dungeon. Don't you feel it so? Seems to me a splendid mansion, sir, I replied. The glamour of inexperience is over your eyes, he answered. And you see it through a charmed medium. You cannot discern that the gliding is slime and the silk draperies cobwebs. The marble is sordid slate, and the polished woods mere refuse chips and scaly bark. Now here, he pointed to the leafy enclosure we had entered, is all real, 
sweet and pure. He strayed down a walk edged with bogs, with apple trees, pear trees, and cherry trees on one side, and a border on the other full of all sorts of old-fashioned flowers, stocks, sweet williams, primroses, pansies mingled with southernwood, sweetbriar, and all various fragrant herbs. They were fresh now as a succession of April showers and gleams, followed by a lovely spring morning could make them. The sun was just entering the dappled east, and his light illuminated the wreathed and dewy orchard trees and shone down the quiet walks under them. Jane, will you have a flower? He gathered a half-blown rose, the first on the bush, and offered it to me. Thank you, sir. Do you like this sunrise, Jane? That sky, with its high and light clouds, which are sure to melt away as the day waxes warm, this placid, and balmy atmosphere. I do, very much. You've passed a strange night, Jane. Yes, sir. It has made you look pale. Were you afraid when I left you alone with Mason? I was afraid of someone coming out of the inner room. But I had fastened the door. I had the key in my pocket. I should have been a careless shepherd if I had left a lamb, my pet lamb, so near a wolf's den, unguarded. You were safe. Will Grace Poole live here still, sir? Oh, yes. Don't trouble your head about her. Put the thing out of your thoughts. Yet it seems to me your life is hardly secure while she stays. Never fear, I will take care of myself. Is the danger you apprehended last night gone by now, sir? Cannot vouch for that till Mason is out of England, nor even then. To live for me, Jane, is to stand on a crater crust which may crack and spew fire any day. But Mr. Mason seems a man easily led. Your influence, sir, is evidently potent with him. He will never set you at defiance or willfully injure you. Oh no, Mason will not defy me, nor knowing it will he hurt me. But unintentionally, he might in a moment, by one careless word, deprive me, if not of life, yet forever of happiness." Tell him to be cautious, sir. Let him know what you fear and show him how to avert the danger. He laughed sardonically, hastily took my hand, and, as hastily, threw it from him. If I could do that, where would the danger be? 
annihilated in a moment. Ever since I have known Mason, I have only had to say to him, do that, and the thing has been done. But I cannot give him orders in this case. I cannot say, beware of harming me, Richard, for it is imperative that I should keep him ignorant that the harm to me is possible. Now you look puzzled, and I will puzzle you further. You are my little friend, are you not? I like to serve you, sir, and to obey you in all that is right. Precisely. I see you do. I see genuine contentment in your gait and mien, your eye and face when you are helping me and pleasing me, working for me and with me in, as you characteristically say, all that is right. For if I bid you to do what you thought wrong, there would be no light-footed running, no neat-handed alacrity, no lively glance and animated complexion. My friend would then turn to me, quiet and pale, and would say, No, sir, that is impossible. I cannot do it because it is wrong and will become immutable as a fixed star. Well, you too have power over me, and may injure me, but I dare not show you where I am vulnerable, lest, faithful and friendly as you are, you should transfix me at once. If you have no more to fear from Mr. Mason than you have from me, sir, you are very safe. God grant it may be so. Here, Jane is an arbor. Sit down. The arbor was an arch in the wall, lined with ivy. It contained a rustic seat. Mr. Rochester took it, leaving room, however, for me. But I stood before him. Sid, he said. The bench is long enough for two. You don't hesitate to take a place at my side, do you? Is that wrong, Jane? I answered him by assuming it. To refuse would, I felt, have been unwise. Now, my little friend, while the sun drinks the dew, while all the flowers in this old garden awake and expand, the birds fetch their young ones breakfast out of the thorn field. The early bees do their first spell of work. I'll put a case to you, which you must endeavor to suppose your own. But first look at me, and tell me you're at ease, and not fearing that I err in detaining you, or that you err in staying. No, sir. I am content. Well then, Jane, call to aid your fancy. Suppose you were no longer a girl well-reared and disciplined, but a wild boy indulged from childhood upwards. Imagine yourself in a remote, foreign land. Conceive that you there commit a capital error no matter of what nature or from what motives, 
but one whose consequences must follow you through life and taint all your existence. Mind, I don't say a crime. I'm not speaking of shedding of blood or any other guilty act which might make the perpetrator amenable to the law. My word is error. The results of what you have done become in time to you utterly insupportable. You take measures to obtain relief, unusual measures, but neither unlawful nor culpable. Still, you are miserable, for hope has quitted you on the very confines of life. Your sun at noon darkens in an eclipse which you feel will not leave it till the time of setting. Bitter and base associations have become the sole food of your memory. You wander here and there, seeking rest in exile, happiness in pleasure. I mean in heartless, sensual pleasure, such as dulls intellect and blights feeling. Heart-weary and soul-withered, you come home after years of voluntary banishment. You make a new acquaintance, how or where, no matter. You find in this stranger much of the good and bright qualities which you have sought for twenty years and never before encountered. And they are all fresh, healthy, without soil and without taint. Such society revives, regenerates. You feel better, days come back, higher wishes, purer feelings. You desire to recommence your life and to spend what remains to you of days in a way more worthy of an immortal being. To attain this end, you justified in overleaping an obstacle of custom, a mere conventional impediment which neither your conscience sanctifies nor your judgment approves. He paused for an answer. And what was I to say? Or for some good spirit to suggest a judicious and satisfactory response. Vain aspiration. The west wind whispered in the ivy round me, but no gentle aerial borrowed its breath as a medium of speech. The birds sang in the treetops, but their song, however sweet, was inarticulate. Again, Mr. Rochester propounded his query. Is the wandering and sinful, but now rest-seeking and repentant man, justified in daring the world's opinion, in order to attach to him forever this gentle, gracious, genial stranger, thereby securing his own peace of mind and regeneration of life. Sir, I answered, 
A wanderer's repose or a sinner's reformation should never depend on a fellow creature. Men and women die. Philosophers falter in wisdom and Christians in goodness. If anyone you know has suffered and erred, let him look higher than his equals for strength to amend and solace to heal. But the instrument, the instrument, God who does the work, ordains the instrument. I have myself, I tell it to you without parable, been a worldly, dissipated, restless man, and I believe I have found the instrument for my cure in… He paused. The birds went on caroling, the leaves lightly rustling. I almost wondered they did not check their songs and whispers to catch the suspended revelation they would have had to wait many minutes, so long was the silence protracted. At last, I looked up at the tardy speaker. He was looking eagerly at me. Little friend, said he in quite a changed tone, while his face changed too losing all its softness and gravity and becoming harsh and sarcastic. You have noticed my tender penchant for Miss Ingram. Don't you think if I married her, she would regenerate me with a vengeance? He got up instantly, went quite to the other end of the walk, and when he came back, He was humming a tune. Jane, Jane, said he, stopping before me. You're quite pale with your vigils. Don't you curse me for disturbing your rest? Curse you? No, sir. Shake hands in confirmation of the word. What cold fingers... They were warmer last night when I touched them at the door of the mysterious chamber. Jane, when will you watch with me again? Whenever I can be useful, sir. For instance, the night before I am married, I'm sure I shall not be able to sleep. Will you promise to sit up with me, to bear me company? To you I can talk of my lovely one. For now you have seen her and know her. Yes, sir. She's a rare one, is she not, Jane? Yes, sir. A strapper. A real strapper, Jane. Big, brown and buxom, with hair just such as the ladies of Carthage must have had. Bless me, There's dent and lin in the stables. Go in by the shrubbery through that wicket. As I went one way, he went another, and I heard him in the yard saying cheerfully, Mason got the start of you all this morning. 
he was gone before sunrise. I rose at four to see him off. Chapter 21 Presentiments are strange things, and so are sympathies, and so are signs, and the three combined make one mystery to which humanity has not yet found the key. I never laughed at presentiments in my life, because I have had strange ones of my own. Sympathies, I believe, exist, for instance, between far distant, long absent, wholly estranged relatives asserting, notwithstanding their alienation, the unity of the source to which each traces his origin, whose workings baffle mortal comprehension and signs, for aught we know, may be but the sympathies of nature with man. When I was a little girl, only six years old, I one night heard Bessie Levin say to Martha Abbott that she had been dreaming about a little child and that to dream of children was a sure sign of trouble either to oneself or one's kin. The saying might have worn out of my memory had not a circumstance immediately followed which served indelibly to fix it there. The next day, Bessie was sent for home to the deathbed of her little sister. Of late, I had often recalled this saying and this incident, for during the past week, scarcely a night had gone over my couch that had not brought with it a dream of an infant, which I sometimes hushed in my arms, sometimes dangled on my knee, sometimes watched, playing with daisies on a lawn, or again, dabbling its hands in running water. It was a wailing child this night, and a laughing one the next. Now it nestled close to me, now it ran from me. But whatever mood the apparition evinced, whatever aspect it wore, it failed not for seven successive nights to meet me the moment I entered the land of slumber. I did not like this iteration of one idea, this strange recurrence of one image, and I grew nervous as bedtime approached and the hour of the vision drew near. It was from companionship with this baby phantom I had been roused on that moonlit night when I heard the cry, and it was on the afternoon of the day following I was summoned downstairs by a message that someone wanted me in Mrs. Fairfax's room. On repairing thither, I found a man waiting for me 
having the appearance of a gentleman's servant. He was dressed in deep mourning, and the hat he held in his hand was surrounded with a crape band. I dare say you hardly remember me, miss, he said, rising as I entered. But my name is Levin. I lived coachman with Mrs. Reed when you were at Gateshead eight or nine years since, and I live there still. Oh, Robert, how do you do? I remember you very well. You used to give me a ride sometimes on Miss Georgiana's bay pony. And how is Bessie? You are married to Bessie? Yes, miss. My wife is very hearty, thank you. She brought me another little one about two months since. We have three now. Both mother and child are thriving. And are the family well at the house, Robert? I'm sorry I can't give you better news of them, miss. They're very badly at present, in great trouble. I hope no one is dead, I said, glancing at his black dress. He too looked down at the crepe round his hand and replied, Mr. John died yesterday, was a week, at his chambers in London. Mr. John, I repeated. Yes, Levin replied. And how does his mother bear it? Why, you see, Miss Eyre, it is not a common mishap. His life has been very wild. These last three years he gave himself up to strange ways, and his death was shocking. I heard from Bessie he was not doing well doing well, but he could not do worse. He ruined his health and estate amongst the worst men and the worst women. He got into debt, into jail. His mother helped him out twice, but as soon as he was free, he returned to his old companions and habits. His head was not strong. The knaves he lived amongst fooled him beyond anything I ever heard. He came down to Gateshead about three weeks ago and wanted Mrs. to give all up to him. Mrs. refused. Their means have been much reduced by his extravagance. So he went back again. The next news was that he was dead. How he died, God knows. They say he killed himself. I was silent. The tidings were frightful. Robert Levin resumed. Mrs. had been out of health herself for some time. She got very stout, but was not strong with it. The loss of money and fear of poverty were quite breaking her down. The information about Mr. John's death and the manner of it came too suddenly. Brought on a stroke. She was three days without speaking. But last Tuesday, she seemed rather better. She appeared as if she wanted to say something, kept making signs to my wife and mumbling. It was only yesterday morning, however, that Bessie understood that she was pronouncing your name. 
And at last, she made out the words, Bring Jane. Fetch Jane Eyre. I want to speak to her. Bessie is not sure whether she is in her right mind or means anything by the words, but she told Miss Reed and Miss Georgiana and advised them send for you. The young ladies put it off at first, but the mother grew so restless and said, Jane, Jane, so many times, that at last they consented. I left Gateshead yesterday, and if you can get ready, miss, I should take you back with me early tomorrow morning. Yes, Robert, I shall be ready. Seems to me that I ought to go. I think so too, miss. Bessie said she was sure you would not refuse. I suppose you will have to ask leave before you can get off. Yes, and I will do it now. And having directed him to the servants' hall and recommended him to the care of John's wife and the attentions of John himself, I went in search of Mr. Rochester. Chapter 5 